0: Surfing, the ultimate extreme sport, carving through roaring waves and soaring through ripping water. And for a lot of people, it's not just a sport. It's a spiritual experience.
1: A lot of times you had this feeling in the morning when there's no wind and it's perfect glass. And you would just sit there and these thoughts would go through your mind, whether they be religious or just... Deep peace of mind.
0: This is Bob Mardian, or Bobbo. And as a Southern California native, he found this peace of mind while surfing in one of the most idyllic beaches in the country, Lower Trestles. Well,
1: Trestles is special, like Malibu is special. And what makes Trestles good is it was shaped in kind of a point and it just created naturally a perfect wave for surfers, a better wave, a faster wave. It was just the perfect wave
0: by serendipity. I wish
1: they all could be California beaches.
0: With its long rolling waves, teal waters and crystal coves, Lower Trestles is crooned about in songs and is featured in full spreads in surfer magazines. But back in the 50s and 60s, this choice beach was off limits. We couldn't go on the beach. But back in those days, we'd paddle up there,
1: and we know we don't belong there. And we, we know we can't go on the beach. we have we to surf, surf, surf. Don't lose your surfboard, hopefully.
0: Paddling from a non-restricted area to lower trestles, Babo made the journey often.
1: There's a, a part of you that's excited that you know you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing, but you're, you're getting away with it.
0: Like this one time, when he was 12 years old, Babbo and his friend Jim were surfing. A wave knocked Jim over, and the surfboard drifted onto the beach. So they had to get Jim's mom to help them out. And then I
1: went with Jim and his mother to go retrieve his surfboard.
0: To get it back, that meant a half-hour ride inland, where the U.S. military held the board in custody. The Marines at Camp Pendleton, to be specific.
1: Nice, clean, green grass and buildings with white trim, All you know, they get free labor out of those Marines.
0: When they arrived, Jim's mom had to sign all these documents saying that her son would never surf at lower trestles again, blah, 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 stuff 12-year-olds don't understand. Then, an officer walked the group to a warehouse opened it up and said,
1: Your surfboard's in here. Go find it. Well, we all go in we're trying to help them find the surfboard. It was helter-skelter in there. There was wood surfboards, foam surfboards, colored surfboards, plain surfboards. They're just a big mixed bag of, like,
0: popcorn. In total, Bobbo thinks there were probably about 50 or 60 confiscated boards at Camp Pendleton during this visit alone. So it seemed like the military had the upper hand, but the surfers weren't going to let the perfect waves crash without a fight. So they kept sneaking onto the beach, no matter if the Marines took their boards. And that's what life was like at lower trestles for years, bushy blonde hairdos versus jar heads, until this clash between the surfers and the military escalated to the highest office in the country. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. I'm Simone Palanen. Surfers and the American military. For years, this unlikely pair squabbled over a delicious slice of SoCal Beach. 52 years ago this week, on August 25th, 1970, this hostile standoff got political, raising the question, who did the beach really belong to? And what does public land really mean? We'll get to the point after the break. Point break. Get it. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Tucked away in San Diego County, California, Trestles, that forbidden beach that the military and surfers were fighting over, is a surf spot like no other. Located on the northern part of San Onofre Beach. Really, it's a living paradise. It literally looks like a Corona beer ad, with pillowy sand surrounded by bamboo and sprinkled with grass huts. The Beach Boys even crooned about the beach, their 1963 mega-hit, Surfing USA. Actually, they shout it out twice. Once for Trestles, and once for San Onofre. Because it is home to some of the best waves in the world.
2: San Onofre is considered the crucible of modern-day surfing. So this lifestyle of living on the beach, grass shacks, surfing all day, playing ukulele at night, and bohemian lifestyle really sprung up there.
0: That's Steve Long, former superintendent of this beach. And San Onofre has a lot of history. In fact, for nearly 10,000 years, native Californians like the Ahashiman would camp at the beach every summer to fish and commune with the ocean. In the mid-30s, surfing landed on this beach. Soon, it became the destination for wave riders. But all of that changed when the U.S. entered into World War II.
2: December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked. —
0: During World War II, the United States established Camp Pendleton. It's the largest marine training facility on the West Coast, covering about 125,000 acres and 17 miles of coastline including San Onofre and trestles. They used the beachfront to train for amphibious landings, like the kinds you'd see in those big World War II movies.
2: At the end of the war, surfers come back, they got a little money in their pocket. Hey, let's go back down to the beach. And they set up the shacks again and started surfing, and it was a uh, pretty uh, Wild West phenomena.
0: Bonfires blazed, people slept on the beach, a bohemian lifestyle thrived. Still, Trussell's was very much under the jurisdiction of the Marines at Camp Pendleton.
2: And the commanding officer was not happy with what was going on down there and threatened to close it down, that we're going to restrict all access.
0: This would have been a disaster for the surfers. To be cut off from some of the best waves in the country, nay, the world, Luckily, there were a few upstanding citizens in the area who had an idea.
2: We'll put together a club and we will regulate membership and control how many people can come in here. We'll pick up the trash. We'll build some pit toilets.
0: That way, the military wouldn't have to manage the ruckus and a small group of surfers could use the beach for leisure. So they brought the idea to the military.
2: And that seemed to be satisfactory to the military.
0: The commanding officer at Camp Pendleton agreed to give the club access to San Onofre, except for lower trestles. And in 1952, the San Onofre Surfing Club began formally meeting. The first few years got off to a rocky start, but by the end of the 50s, the club was in full swing. They enforced a membership quota, collected dues, and had a years-long wait list. And for most people in the club, It was utopia. The families, they'd eat together, have events together,
1: volleyball tournaments together. Every parent was a lifeguard for everybody else's kids, so it was really a safe beat, and you just grew up with confidence.
0: That's Babo again. We heard him talk about sneaking into lower trestles as a youngster at the top of the episode. Back in the day, his family belonged to the San Onofre Surfing Club. And he says everyone there was equal. Men
1: are just in their trunks. You're not special. And everybody just became the same. You know,
0: there was no hierarchy. Equal, though individualized, there was a pocket of beach for each little community in the club. One for the old men to read books and gab, one to play volleyball, and one just for dog lovers. But Lower Trestles was still off limits. Members and non-members alike snuck in, causing friction with the Marines. So they responded by posting up at the beach and confiscating boards, just like we heard at the top of the show. Some surfers even remember being beaten with billy clubs by Marines when their boards washed up on lower trestles. So yeah, it was a pretty big problem for both the surfers and the military. — As tensions rose and surfboards piled up in that warehouse at Camp Pendleton, some members of the club feared that the military would revoke their agreement entirely if something didn't change. And the situation continued to escalate when, in 1969, an unexpected dick popped up at the beach. A tricky dick, that is. And I want to say this
2: to the television audience, because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook.
3: Well, I'm not a crook.
0: For most people, former President Richard Nixon is known best for Watergate. Well, did you also know Dick was a proud and true Californian? That's right. In fact, when he became president in 1969, he set up shop at what was called the Western White House in San Clemente, a little Spanish village by the sea that butts up right against trestles and Camp Pendleton. From this Spanish-style hacienda, Nixon conducted official business, even welcoming several heads of state. But all this official business only made the issues with the surfers even more contentious. When the White
2: House moved in at San Clemente, the surfers moved out, with many going further north to Huntington Beach. They're a breed that don't care for military police and secret servicemen always asking questions.
0: So, Secret Service was buzzing around the area in their black suits, keeping the beach on even tighter lockdown. Talk about the ultimate vibe killer, because Nixon and his wife, Pat, were all about that beach life. Oh,
3: thank you, Mr. President. Is the first
0: lady waiting for that walk now, do you think? I understand out of the corner of my eye that she might be. <laughs> so. The first couple loved strolling along San Onofre in their wingtip shoes and loafers, but the rocket power kids might call total shoebies. And there's a story that on one of these walks with the president, The First Lady came up with an idea to share her love of the beach.
2: Some say that it was Pat Nixon who said to him, This would be wonderful to open this up as a park for all people.
0: Whether the story is real or not, what is true is that this little contentious slice was on the fast track to becoming a key part of Nixon's pet project called
3: Legacy of Parks Program.
0: The Legacy of Parks program surveyed and transferred underutilized federal lands to state and local governments so that people throughout the U.S. could enjoy more parks and outdoor space. Pat Nixon even did a nationwide tour for the program in 1971.
3: I see all these young children here today, and I think of what fun they're going to have here. Boating, enjoying the beauties of this river, camping, hiking, playing baseball.
0: This focus on recreation was also linked to what Nixon hoped would have been his crowning presidential achievement, cleaning up the environment for all Americans, which is what led to the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. Word got out that a part of Camp Pendleton was on a short list to become state land. And it was like a third challenger entered the ring in the battle for San Onofre. The surf club, the military, and now, of all the people in the world, President Nixon. After the break, the battle over the beach gets gnarly and we'll jump the shark into the politics of beach life. bunga, my dudes. Before the break, we learned all about the beef between the military and the surfers. Their handshake agreement to share the beach was hanging on by a thread when President Richard Nixon showed up and proposed that the land be transferred to the state, which tied directly into the legacy of parks programs. So the president was all about opening up San Onofre, but not everyone was on board. So the
2: Marines are not real keen on giving up much. They were kind of in a tough spot.
0: Nixon's frustration over coordinating the land transfer with the military was even captured in one of his staticky secret recordings. It's hard to make out, but the tape says We're having problems with the Armed Services Committee and shaking some of this military land loose. So let's just say the military was not budging on Nixon's idea. As for the surf club, they wanted to keep the beach exclusive and not have just any Tom, Dick, or Harry on the beach clogging up the good swells and taking over their little utopia. And lucky for them, they had a secret weapon, an insider at the Nixon administration, Bobo's dad, Bob Mardian Sr.
1: We called them, that's me and my brothers, the
0: bald Eagle. Bald Eagle was a member of the San Onofre Surfing Club. And he also just happened to be assistant attorney general for the Nixon administration. And back in 1970, he was the club's best shot at getting through to the president.
1: According to my father, anyway, he thought
2: it would be prudent to approach Nixon so he could see this kind of well-rounded mix that are taking care of this beach.
0: This is Tom Craig, His father was actually the president of the San Onofre Surfing Club at the time. So they got the bald eagle to coordinate a meeting with President Nixon. And on August 25th, 1970, a handful of San Onofre Surfing Club members met on the lawn of the Western White House to convince Nixon not to make the beach public. Tom and his father were there.
2: I think I was 19 years old. I was a little nervous at first, you know, going through the, the, the gate at the Western White House and everything, but my dad was all dressed up in a suit. I had my Hawaiian shirt on and sunglasses and everything.
0: That was very much the vibe. Older, balding men in suits and young, long-haired, blonde people in surfer garb. There were handshakes and polite discussion. But this wasn't just a meet and greet. The club members brought an honorary membership to butter up the president. Nixon wasn't a surfer per se, but he did own a surfboard. It was a gift from one of his daughters.
2: And that's kind of a joke. Nixon's got a surfboard. Hey, let's make him an honorary member of the surf club and maybe he'll see our side of the story and not make it public.
0: (laughs) Now that he had the membership, everyone had to wait and see if the president would maintain the status quo or open up the beach to the public. By the spring of 1971, his decision was announced.
2: The president announced today that six miles of military beachfront property at Camp Pendleton will be turned over to California for a state Sancto park. Point where the big breakers roll is being transferred from the Marines to public swimming. Today, the president turned that beach back to the citizens as the first of a series of turnbacks of underused military property to recreational purpose.
0: President Nixon declared that San Onofre would become a state beach. A 50-year lease for the land was secured from the military at a steal. The state would pay just $1 for the entire contract. That means only two cents a year. But here's the thing. Neither the military nor the surf club ever had any chance. Apparently, Tricky Dick had his own hidden agenda. Here's Steve Long again.
2: Nixon's already thinking about his future. He's expecting to be elected for a second term. And then all presidents need to have a location for a presidential library.
0: Now, presidents aren't supposed to build their libraries on land that is federally owned. But if it was state property, well, then he could build whatever he wanted.
2: So he formed a committee that included many of the uh, famous names that later went on to Watergate fame. And they come to this conclusion that if it's not part of the military base, they can, in fact, put a presidential library there.
0: So, everything seemed to be coming up Nixon, with the beach transferring to state land. Years later, all of this would fall apart after he resigned in disgrace because of Watergate. By the way, Bobo's dad, the bald eagle, got convicted in Watergate, too, though he was later exonerated and Nixon's presidential library landed about 40 miles inland to Yorba Linda. So it wasn't all benevolence when it came to the beach. Still, Nixon's secret agenda wasn't the biggest issue. Thank you very much for your friendly welcome today. There's a 1971 ABC special report showing Pat Nixon giving a speech to open up a historic park in Minnesota. She's got her big yellow hair, her perfectly pink dress, her string of pearls— She's there to promote the Legacy of Parks program, the same deal that created San Onofre State Beach.
3: I've been looking forward to coming to Port Snelling for this exciting ceremony. And the federal government... Well, we have a few friends here. Thank you for coming. The crowd's warm applause silenced the hecklers, and the First Lady minimized the incident.
0: Behind the audience... Pat Nixon was informed that a small group of Native American demonstrators were protesting the transfer of land.
3: Apparently, they were Indians who were protesting the giving back of the property to the state, which means, of course, to the state they can enjoy it as well as any other citizen. But apparently...
0: She makes a fair point. If you completely ignore American history and, I don't know, just like basic context— in San Onofre, similar issues were at stake. We have these tremendous, tremendous ties to the land. You know, like, it's our experience as Indian people. That's Rebecca Robles. She's a member of the ahashiman tribe on her mother's side, the same group that used the beach for 10,000 years to fish and commune with the ocean. And she's an advisor for the San Onofre Parks Foundation, along with Steve Long, the former beach superintendent. To be the people of the land,
3: and know where the sacred sites are, know where the burials are, know where the power places are, know what plants can be used, know the ocean. You know, we, we also were ocean people. And so it's not like we can put it in a box and say, oh, our history, it's in a book over there. You know, we're a part of it. We're the living part of it.
0: For eons, the Native peoples not only lived as a part of the land, they took care of it, long before any surfers or the military showed up.
3: First explorers said it looked like a garden when they got here, you know, that it looked like a tended garden.
0: Ahasemun fished for bass and trout, built boats from reeds, and like many other tribes in the area, they harvested chia, yucca, and acorns. A sustainable way of life.
3: I think that's what it's important to look at, how the And the Native Americans lived so long, 10,000 years at least, and not destroy everything.
0: Then, in 1769, Spanish explorers established a mission system and enslaved Native peoples in what is now California. From there, slavery in the mission system ravaged their way of life. And when the mission system ended... The land was turned into a ranch. The Ahashemen were left with little choice but to work there. But the real calamity came when gold was discovered in the northern part of the territory in 1848. People flooded in from all around the world. And it was a destruction of culture, destruction of religion. And
3: the second governor, he said, my goal is to rid California of the venom of the Indian people.
0: Local governments even offered bounties for Native peoples. For example, in Shasta County, $5 was offered for every Native Californian head turned in. By the end of the gold rush, only 15% of the Native Californian population was left. Some of those remaining were the Ahaschemen, who continued to work on the ranch up until the military showed up in the 1940s. So many of our
3: tribal members lived on that ranch, grew up on that ranch, worked at ranch. And some of our elders, you know, like the people in their 80s, 70s, 60s, they remember living up there on the ranch.
0: After the war was over, Rebecca says the state government did seem to acknowledge the Native claims to the land. In the late
3: 1960s, the state of California paid Indian people like a check in compensation for the land loss. My family refused to even get checks, and we refused to cash the checks.
0: Then, in the 1970s and 80s, in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement, an entirely new attitude began to develop.
3: It was like a renaissance for a California Indian culture. You know, there was a revival of songs, ceremony, language, and then are seeking federal recognition.
0: And so you ask what happened to us, we're still here. So considering all of this, it's especially disconcerting when we think about what happened in 1971, as Nixon, the state, the military, and the surf club were fighting over the beach. Rebecca says the Ahashemen, the original people of the land, were never consulted
3: I've never talked to anybody about it but what I I <laughs> I think they would have just thought oh well hmm, the government's doing something else so I don't think that they were involved in it at all
0: since 1971 there have been improvements to the relationship between the first peoples and the government. Rebecca says Camp Pendleton has contacted the tribe when remains need to be reburied. Tribal meetings and celebrations are held at the state beach. Signage in the museum includes traditional language. And the millennia of stewardship continues, something that Rebecca and many of her tribal members see as their duty.
3: Part of our cosmology is that as the people of the land, as the people who have, you know, like are able to speak and have this power to walk around and make decisions, that we have, we carry responsibilities to take care of it.
0: Today, a new problem has emerged with the beach. The 50-year lease that Nixon enacted just expired in 2021. A temporary agreement has been secured in the short term, but it's not clear if another 50-year lease will be signed. If a lease is renewed, the military is federally required to charge the actual value of the property. That means the $1 price tag will likely shoot up to $250 million per year which the state of California might not be able to afford. So while the future of the park is unclear, this could be a new opportunity for reparations.
3: This is an unprecedented time for land back. That's what I'm thinking. Why not give land back to the Ahashman people in other places it's happening? Is this an opportunity for that? Is it an opportunity for justice? Why not? Why not now?
0: When we first dove into this story, I was expecting this charming tale of a SoCal community fighting for their beach, all with an unexpected celebrity appearance by Richard Nixon as the unlikely savior of surf. And to an extent, it is just that. Until you start to zoom out and see that this story is woven into a larger one, that this piece of land has a far-reaching history. So asking the question, who does this land belong to, the Marines, the surfers, the general public, without consulting that history, it's an incomplete question. Perhaps, like Rebecca says, there's an opportunity now to include the people that were overlooked in the 70s, the descendants of the original people, and to use the land's expansive history as a guide for what happens next. It's a new dawn for trestles, a new wave is crashing onto its shores. Why fight it when you can surf it? Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Julie Carley. Next week, we're going on a domino journey that starts at the first opium war and ends on the silver screen. The rest of our team is associate producer Ramoy Phillip. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Brittany Luce and Andrea B. Scott. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Emma Munger. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co, with music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Chris Iltis, Don Craig, Mario Cuevas, Aram Perjanian, Mike Gauthier, Willie Pink, Ryan Pettigrew, The Nixon Library, and to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Hahn, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, Ella Walsh, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, hey, why don't you rate us five stars? You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Palanin Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week.
3: And would you say that Nixon
0: is the patron saint of surfing?
3: He's a what? The patron saint of surfing? No. <laughs> no. Does anyone in here believe that Nixon is the patron saint? No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, no, not not at all.